Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, good morning. It is Wednesday, the 25th of August. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We've got a full day planned in two hours. That's right. We're going to cover a lot of material. Um, we're going to do so in in ways that ideally equip each and every one of us to walk our faith out into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus. That is my hope this morning, that we will cover the headline news of the day, bring the mind of Christ to bear, and you and I will be um, more fully equipped to live as ambassadors of Jesus Christ in the hours and the days ahead. So I want to lead off this morning uh, with a where in the word question. I am in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, um, whom you have from God? Okay, so the Holy Spirit's within you. This is the point Paul's trying to make. Because you are indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit, sent from God, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, you are therefore not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. What is the price paid for my body, your body? Well, it's it's the very life of Christ. And so... Um, you and I recognize and acknowledge that Christ saves us. And I think we often just think of that as a spiritual reality. What Paul is pointing out here is it's also a physical reality. Jesus came in uh, corporeal form, like he came as a physical person in a physical, in physical flesh. Matter matters. Embodiment matters. The body matters. So glorify God in your body. That is the starting point, I would say, for a conversation among Christians and in terms of when Christians are having conversations in the wider culture about what we put into our bodies. It's a matter of stewardship. This body that God has given me um, is the only one I get. It's a matter of being a good steward of that which God has entrusted to me. It's also about ministry capacity and capability. There's just a lot of things that if you um, if you mistreat your body, if you um, fill it with all kinds of things that aren't supposed to be in there and you allow it to um, atrophy and you do not strengthen your body, um, then you're less capable of doing the ministry to which God has called you. And it's a matter of public witness. Um, it is a matter of public witness. When the world looks at the Christian and looks at Christians and sees gluttons. Let's just start there. Um, that's a poor public witness. And it's also about a living sacrifice. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is a part of our spiritual worship. And so I want to 
tee that up for us for our personal consideration because we're going to be talking about health and health care, specifically related to COVID and COVID treatments and what's available and how people are making use of it or how it is being denied based on vaccination status. And I don't want us to just fixate on COVID or vaccination status or what other people are doing. I want us to focus at least for a moment on what we are doing about our own physical health and wellness, about the stewardship of these physical temples that the Holy Spirit indwells, these things we call bodies. All right, Todd Furness is going to be here in just a moment. He and I are going to turn our attention to um, some healthcare headlines specifically related to people who need treatment for COVID, but who are being triaged based on their vaccination status. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Todd Furness. He is, among other things, the author of The 60% Solution. We like to talk with Todd about healthcare headlines. Todd, welcome back. How the heck are you? Mm. I, well, I am well, and it is well with my soul. Um, but we, since you and I have spoken, we and our family have uh, gone through, experienced a a COVID death. And so this conversation about um, treatment, what's available, who is being, who is receiving what treatments and when based on what, like, you know, it's, it is not just of interest to me on a national, international level. It's of interest to me personally. So tell us where we are um, and why you and I are talking today about triage based on COVID vaccination status. Well, first of all, let me, let me say, I'm sorry for your, for the passing. Uh, that's terrible news. And I'm sorry you're going through that. That's never pleasant. Um, but it's a part of life, obviously, and it's mm-hmm. just tragic. Um, where we are in the COVID story is a unique point in time, I think, when ethical decisions are really challenging. Now, I admit that in, in, to some extent they're hard, but uh, some of the decisions that are being made, even by some of the finest institutions in the United States, uh, are, in my estimation, quite troubling. And so by way of example, I point to you to a memo that was written by a Dr. Fine in Dallas, who, I'm just kind of stunned by this, said, and I quote from the memo, vaccine status therefore may be considered when making triage decisions as part of the physician's assessment of each individual's likelihood of survival. Triage must remain grounded upon likelihood of survival. What that means is that the memo was written to state that doctors have the ability to change their treatment or to not treat at all if the patient had not been vaccinated. Mm. Okay, so does this come down to, um, in, in some cases or some places, an issue of scarcity in terms of beds available and they would be triaging, they would be making decisions, triage decisions based on 
available beds and available ventilators and available. Do you see where I'm going with this? Like, how are sure. they supposed to what 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 should be the standard of of triage decision making? Well, I think, first of all, you've got an obligation to treat patients as they come in. And the only way, in my view, to do this in the, in, without any form of discrimination whatsoever is to just do it on a, on a chronological basis on the terms of arrival. In other words, whoever comes in first gets the service. Now, if you say that we're going to uh, predicate uh, triage and, and assistance based on vaccination status, you get, I think you get into a, a very, very complicated set of questions and answers. And it begs the question as to when can they apply this? So your your question is insightful and a good one that says, hey, if we how do we make the decision if we if we have a limited supply of resources to treat the problem? And in that instance, you're saying that would the, the argument would be likely that if you haven't taken precautions yourself, then you shouldn't be entitled to a treatment to any treatment. I thought that what was fascinating as a prelude to this conversation was your reference to gluttony and our obligation to maintain the temple that we were given by God. And what is unfortunate is that in 78% of the cases where the patient is intubated or dies from COVID, there's a comorbidity called obesity. So one could make an assertion that the real issue is obesity, not not the, the virus itself. Now, let's just imagine that that's the case for the moment. And then you come back to the question, well, wait a minute, you haven't taken care of yourself. In the one instance, the example would be the vaccination status of the patient. In the other instance, the issue would be the obesity status of the patient. Which do you treat first? Or do you make a decision as to whom to treat first? The likelihood of survival for the person who is obese is lower than the likelihood of survival for the person who's not been vaccinated. Do you turn them away? Yeah, it's a huge question. I mean, I I do think this is one of those conversations, Todd, that um, maybe people don't have publicly, but people sure have privately a lot when we talk about, let's say when we talk about um, single-payer health care. Um, as soon as that conversation comes up, I know that in the circles where, you know, I'm engaged in conversations, um, I hear people privately say, hey, if people aren't treating their body the way that they should be, I shouldn't have to, as a taxpayer, pay for, and the list is long of things people don't want to pay for. They don't want to pay for um, uh, cancer treatments for people who have lung cancer who are smokers. They don't want to pay for um, uh the, the care for a diabetic who has not cared for their body. I mean, the list is long when people start turning an eye toward the conversation about who wants to pay for someone else's care when that person has not cared for, um, cared for themselves. And so let's continue that conversation in just a moment. I'm talking with Todd Furness. Um, the, the book, the 60% Solution, which Todd has joined us on a prior occasion to discuss, it's really excellent and takes a really deep dive and interesting look at healthcare and how we really could resolve the issues that we face as a country if we approach the whole thing differently. Um, but today, we're specifically talking about, well, we started talking about triaging COVID patients, but this is a, this is a much bigger conversation. So we're going to continue this discussion in just a moment. We'll be right back. Here we are. 
All right, continuing our conversation with Todd Furness, author of The 60% Solution. Um, Todd, let's let's go ahead and have the conversation about how we care rightly for one another and how much responsibility I should have to bear for your choices. Well, I think it gets back to a question of the the dynamic tension between the rights of the individual versus the rights of the collective. And what's happened, I think, in the in the discussion is we've made some errors from a leadership perspective in both administrations in that we've combined the issue with risk analysis, usually an obligation of the medical research scientists uh, like Dr. Fauci and others, with the obligation to develop policy that responds to that risk based on the risk tolerance levels of the community or the country. And that's there's a lot of complicated concepts I just threw at you. Um, fortunately, you're the you're I, I gleefully tell you that you're one of the best, most insightful and best prepared hosts on radio today. I'm grateful for your having conversations like this. It's because um, other people the, sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, the <laughs> issue is that historically what's happened in common law. So do we have two primarily two legal systems in the world. One is common law, which says from the United from the United Kingdom that says you have any rights that uh, God gives you except for those rights which are taken away by government. Or in other words, you can do anything you can, you want except for that which is prohibited by statute or regulation. And that's why our government is intentionally moving very deliberately whenever it makes a law. It's supposed to be slow and cumbersome and lumbering. The other side of the equation is civil law, which says you only have those rights which are accorded to you by statute regulation. That's in you know most uh, Catholic countries, for example, uh, Spain, Portugal, France, Belgium, uh, and, and others. Um, Poland and Turkey are oddly enough both common, and Spain are, are common law, are civil law countries. So what happens in the in the the legal tradition in the United States has been that you can only uh, impose upon the rights of the individual when there's quote a compelling public policy to reason to do so. So the question is, at what point does something become quote unquote a material risk that would give rise to a compelling public policy reason? In my view, if if hospitalization or death and particularly death from this disease is a, is sort of sub 1.5% risk that's not a material risk that's not a that doesn't give rise to a compelling public policy reason for doing so especially when you consider that if you look at the vaccination rates we say you know the the public outcry is that only 51% of americans have been fully vaccinated that number is actually a little bit misleading because it's actually closer to 60% of adults meaning anybody over 12 and those under 12 shouldn't be getting the vaccine or haven't been approved to get the vaccine. Women who are of childbearing years, 15 to 44 years of age, for example, uh, should, may, uh, are, are, it's questionable whether or not they should uh, get the vaccinated. I've seen reports that say that the risk of miscarriage goes up from 10% to 80% if a woman is vaccinated during her first trimester, for example. Um, about 10% of our population has had COVID, so they have antibodies. And then the list goes on in terms of others who might have natural immunity or religious exemptions. So when you get to the, to the end of the question, you've got to say, well, how many people are left, really, who shouldn't be vaccinated or, and, or who can be vaccinated? And the other thing we've got to say is when you look at young people who are the people who are most adversely affected by Delta right now, um, they're going to likely, in all likelihood, quickly recover. Not everybody's going to quickly recover, but most are going to quickly recover, and they're going to develop antibodies, which is why we've seen the spikes in the cliffs in the UK and in other places. 
All right. You've said um, you said so many good things that we want to circle back around to and be sure that um, that people hear and highlight. Could you describe one more time the difference between common law and civil law? Um, and then we have a question from um, from Scott who wants to know um, if by your observation, healthcare has become more utilitarian and less humanitarian. So that's an interesting way of describing uh, the question in front of us as well. This is one of your 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 listeners are such such fantastic listeners. They're so, they're great at leaning in. So thank you for the question. They're, on the common law versus civil law, this is an oversimplification, but it's it's directionally correct as we say. Uh, in common law, you can do anything except for that which is prohibited. Uh, and the reason for that is because your rights are God given and uh, they're inalienable. Uh, this is all the idea that was the at the source of the founders' inspiration for the right of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. In civil law, you're only given those rights which are accorded to you by and large by government, meaning they have to come through regulation or statute, which means that if you want to take an action, uh, then you have to show a, a statute that allows you to take that action. I'll give an example real quickly. Um, I had a, a company uh, in Brazil. And I wanted to terminate the CEO of that company because I thought he was doing some bad stuff. So I, I terminated his employment. And then he came back and said, you don't have the right to do that. So I went down to Brazil and the judge said, well, tell me what authority you have as a chairman of the board to terminate the employment of the CEO. And I said, well, what do you mean? It's in our bylaws and our documents. He said, yeah, but what laws give you that right? Mm. Right. So there's a complicated legal issue. I won't bore you with the detail details, but that's the idea between civil law and common law. Um, with regard to the question around has has healthcare been utilitarian or hum- and less humanitarian? I think the answer is unequivocally yes. And what's happened is that the business models at the basis of healthcare now are complicated, littered with conflicts of interest and are creating economic interests that are inconsistent with the delivery of compassionate care. And we're all unwilling participants in this grand scheme, unfortunately. And I don't mean that as a that there's any intended conspiracy, but rather that the, the models and the regulations uh, work together to create unnecessarily expensive health care and bad outcomes. All right. I want people to um, be reminded about the 60 percent solution, uh, rethinking health care. I want guys want you to visit the 60 percent solution. You have to spell out all the words so you can't put the number 60 in there. You have to spell out the word S-I-X-T-Y, the 60 percent solution dot com. Rethinking health care. Um, Todd Furness is an industry insider. And this book is excellent. It's a conversation we must be having and we must educate ourselves in order to have it um, have it well. So um, thank you, Todd, as always, for joining us and stimulating our thoughts and and frankly provoking, um, you know, our own conversations in our own households and with our healthcare providers. It's really helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carmen. I'm pleased to be here. All right. We'll be right back. Okay, thank you for those of you um, communicating with me related to headlines you've seen 
um, that are COVID related that I haven't covered. Yes, monoclonal antibodies are affirmed as very effective if received early before the infection progresses to the point that a patient requires hospitalization. That from Dr. Fauci yesterday affirming that, uh, let's see, it is monoclonal antibodies are underutilized uh, and certainly can reduce the risk of hospitalization or death from COVID-19 by something like 70 to 85 percent. And so monoclonal antibodies uh, or monoclonal antibody therapy, something you are likely to hear more and more about. And if you are diagnosed with COVID-19, that is the question I would ask my physician first. I'd get out there and ask that question. You're also uh, asking me about ivermectin. All right, let me just let me just affirm this. Ivermectin, which you are hearing a lot about and reading a lot about, has been uh, shown to be very effective in clinical studies in Israel. But pay really close attention to this part. The dosage really matters. Dosage really matters. And so um, you are not a horse. And the dosage of, in, uh, of ivermectin that's available through places that... Um, you know, are designed to take care of animals, are dosed for 1,000-pound animals. You are not a horse. You cannot treat yourself in that way with this drug. Um, yes, talk to your doctor about ivermectin. It is certainly effective um, for a number of things and proven effective in this one study in Israel related to COVID-19. So there you go. You are, in fact, not a horse. You are a human, and that matters. All right, next up, we've got Ruth Kramer. We're going to talk about things going on around the world. You can read it all at Mission News. We'll be right back. Let me ask you a question. How did you learn to forgive? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. It's not something most of us think about, but I'd wager that you weren't taught to forgive. You just caught it from your parents. You learned by their actions what it meant to forgive and forget. The sad part is, if they held grudges, you most likely do too. Forgiveness isn't easy. And when you're hurt by someone, especially your children, it's tempting to hold back love. The problem here is that you're teaching your kids two things. First, they're only lovable when they don't mess up. And second, that they'll treat their own kids like that. So break the cycle. Trust God and offer forgiveness. Do you have teenagers under your roof? Find more encouragement and helpful resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. To boldly go where no one has gone before. Ruth Kramer is back with us today. You know her from Mission Network News. Everything we're discussing today you can find at missionnews.org. Ruth, welcome back. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So we're going to um, start in Afghanistan. There's a number of headlines uh, today at Mission News on this. Uh, let's let's just let's start with the one that um, is topping, uh, topping the website right now, which is the Taliban hit list targets Afghan Christians. Well, you know, I know you guys have been talking with other uh, people who are working in Afghanistan, so it's really not going to be a surprise to folks as they're hearing about what's happening, that the Taliban uh, is presenting one face to the Western media and presenting another face within the country. Um, so a hit list 
of known enemies is not going to be a surprise. Um, and again, it is not a surprise to find out that the the main group on this hit list are Christians that they're targeting to kill. Um, they're raiding houses. We heard about that. What I don't know if folks knew that was that Taliban are actually taking people's personal devices, like their phones, to look for Christian apps, to look for Christian material. And then that would actually uh, support their claim that these are enemies of the state. Um, that is one of the major concerns that we're hearing about right now with uh, different partnering organizations. Heart for Iran is actually part of this um, because they've been broadcasting gospel programs into Afghanistan uh, since 2007. Uh, they have a media division called Mohabat TV, and they have been investing heavily into bringing the gospel into the into the region, into Afghanistan, um, for a number of years because of all of these kinds of situations, because of the, the crisis uh, that exists for people um, who feel pretty isolated. And at this stage of the game, Afghan believers know that they're in danger. They, they're they're fleeing to the mountains, and there are so many of them that we're hearing through the the grapevine, through the the different partners that are on the ground, that they feel abandoned, just because of the situation, because it's of the sudden chaos, because um, suddenly they're cut off, they feel isolated. There's not a lot that's a, a, available in the way of networked help, um, and so they feel very alone. And when they do find out that there are resources that can be offering uh, gospel hope, um, offering worship and and news, it's a great comfort to them. And and to hear also that people are praying for them, um, that they are lifting them up before the throne of grace, makes them feel, makes them remember that we are a family under under the banner of God. Um, this is one of those things where you have virtual church that's going on through media ministries where uh, you can't really predict where the diaspora is going to go, but because there are resources available through media, through radio, through TV, they're still going to be able to find some source of comfort in, in this time time of need. Um, also, Heart for Iran has launched a, uh, a project uh, where they're sending Bibles to Afghan refugees who are escaping into Iran. Um, so because of the the proximity of the countries, you're going to hear a little bit more about where these refugees are going to show up. And they're heading into Iran. So they're leaving. It's like frying pan fire kind of a thing. You know, you're going into you're leaving a country where you're being hunted down because of your faith and you're going into a country where the persecution of Christians is known um, to be extreme. But at the same time, Iran has one of the fastest growing churches, bodies of Christ, big C church um, it per capita in the world. So there's there's just this tension that exists there. And, and uh, Heart for Iran is trying to make sure that Bibles are going to be there for the Afghan refugees. Um, you know, we've got the links at our website and in the article if you want to be part of that. Uh, and, and we want to just encourage folks to remember to, to be praying. Um, every time we have the opportunity to let these people who are, are on the run know that we haven't forgotten them. There's not a lot we can do from here you know, as a single person, but we can lift our hands and our hearts up to the Lord on their behalf and ask God to work in these situations. We can ask God to protect his followers. We can ask God for opportunities, uh, for safety. We can ask God to change the hearts of the Taliban, be praying for the Taliban, because there are so many times when we hear about uh, these Saul to Paul kinds of situations where God appears to them in dreams and visions. You know, this kind of stuff 
doesn't happen or doesn't isn't recorded as often in in the West, but it does happen often in these areas, and the, it's effective. It it continues to astound me when we hear from Uncharted Ministries, uh, when we hear from folks who are working with the uh, the believers who are working with former uh, uh, extremist fighters that are coming out and saying. Um, I kept dreaming about this man in white. I kept dreaming about this person who said, come follow me, put this aside. And then they find out who that person is, and it's Jesus Christ. Um, it, as, as incredible as it sounds, there's such uh, a hope quotient in this story. And I want to encourage your listeners to remember who we serve remember the God of creation and lift up these Afghan believers uh, to him and also be praying that he changes the hearts of the Taliban because uh, if, if we were to see that happen, it would just be one of those moments where people's jaws would drop open and say, wow, what a God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to uh, be sure that folks know that Christians are being American Christians and other Christians from other parts of the world who have been in Afghanistan. Um, I just want to affirm to you that many of them are getting out. We have news from Samaritan's Purse that 80 missionary families have been successfully evacuated via um, land routes that they were able to um, secure through partnerships. We also um, have news that some 700 um, other people have been uh, evacuated um, through the through the efforts of some Samaritan Purse partner organizations. Here's what that means, though, as you hear me say all of that. Um, all of the people who have been on the ground in Afghanistan supporting Afghan Christians and supporting um, efforts to minister to Afghan Christians, all those people are leaving. Like that, that's one of the critical things that I think we need to recognize in here. Afghan Christians are by and large going to remain in Afghanistan. Um, the people who have been serving them through NGOs, Christian NGOs, um, are all leaving. And so that's, that is one of the highlights here. Um, and I, I want to be sure that even as you hear that Christians are being evacuated from Afghanistan, those are not Afghan Christians who are being evacuated. Afghan Christians are by and large going to remain in Afghanistan and will have no way out. And so um, we will absolutely need to continue not only praying for them, but figuring out creative ways to resource them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I Ruth, wanted when to we point out, too. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. I wanted to point out, too, that we do have a story regarding the soldiers who uh, have have served in Afghanistan uh, through Set Free Ministries. Warrior Set Free is a is a partnering ministry, is a sister ministry to Set Free Ministries, and it's veterans to veterans. And what they're encouraging folks, you know, that have served in in uh, in Afghanistan to remember is that um, you did your job. Mm. We thank you for doing the job that you did. Um, focus right now on overcoming these these strong emotions as you're watching what's happening. Uh, focus on Christ through that. Um, you know, we want to say thank you for what you did. Thank you for the service. Thank you for for uh, coming alongside the people who needed your help. And you didn't fail. Um, this is one of those things where we just want to make sure that we we remember that there are people who have invested heavily in Afghanistan as they're watching this situation unfold. 
A Warrior Set Free is a great ministry to help people cope with the other side of things um, as as we deal with watching this uh, this continue. Um, this is not a headline that's going to be going away anytime soon. I want to encourage folks, if you've got someone that you know who's struggling right now, uh, who's an Army veteran, who's military, um, go to, to, our, to our website and look at the Set Free Ministries uh, link there because the Warrior Set Free uh, is connected to that as well. Thank you so much. All right, you can find um, that article and links to Warriors Set Free um, at missionnews.org. Ruth Kramer and I will be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. You can find what we're discussing at missionnews.org. Um, Ruth, let's um, let's pivot to what's going on in Haiti. Um, I'm reading on your website that gangs are complicating earthquake relief efforts there um, and that we may be facing a death toll much higher than what's being reported. Yeah, well, our partners that are in Haiti basically say that that little part of the Thumb uh, Island um, was basically destroyed. Um, the what they're finding in the in the days to come is going to probably bear that out. With in terms of the uh, predictor of the death toll and and just how critical that situation is. Um, you have an area that's basically isolated because everything's been cut off. They, there's no roads that are passable at this stage. Um, the gangs were kind of marauding through the area. The government kind of settled, set a, uh, for lack of a better term, ceasefire with the gangs to allow aid to try to get through as best as uh, as they could get it through, uh, whether that's by boat or by plane. And um, for now, the gang situation is, uh, I would say, at an uneasy hold. Um, we, there's no way to know when that's going to break or when they decide uh, that's enough time to uh, to allow the aid groups to get through. Um, and that that unknown factor is what's causing tension for ministries who are really scrambling to try to make sure that they're reaching people who, right now. Uh, are having a tough time getting getting supplies, just survival supplies. Mission Aviation Fellowship is one of those organizations that's conducting emergency medical flights and flying in aid. Um, but like I said, because the roads aren't a great option for transporting relief, they're overwhelmed. They're completely overwhelmed by the needs that are being called in all the time. Uh, and complicating things, they have limited personnel available to uh, staff the flights. They have, they're down to one plane because the other plane had uh, emergency uh, repairs that needed to be made. And they can't get the parts because of the supply chain issues with COVID-19. So they have one plane that they're using to try to fly all of these medical flights, all of these aid flights into the area that is at the epicenter. Um, and it's it's very, very um, overwhelming for the ministry. So be praying for those ministries who are in Haiti right now trying to uh, just get the basic survival supplies to folks that need it. Um, they're asking for wisdom as to who they respond to and who maybe they, they can uh, have wait just a little bit longer. They will get to everybody they can, but 
you know, again, this is a situation of limited resources. Um, the, our other partner for Haiti with Love is up in the north in Cap Haitian. They weren't really affected by the damage of the quake. However, they are preparing their facilities because what happened in the 2010 quake was that uh, when it was clear that the aid wasn't going to get where it needed to go, people started leaving that area and trekking up north where there were more supplies, where there were more resources, where it was possible to survive. And so for Haiti with Love is kind of expecting to see a repeat of that. And um, they were trying to make sure that they had enough shipment of the food supplies, the medical supplies to their clinic and things like that so that they're ready to take on the extra people. Um, added to that, I think you had family members that were still uh, kind of separated. So they're really expecting to see an influx probably in the next couple of weeks as things begin to reveal themselves on on how effective the aid train is actually going to be to get into the areas. Uh, there are a lot of people who invested in Haiti after 2010. So the good news is that there's already uh, a number of church networks that are down there that are um, in place to get aid if they can get it through the impassable areas. Um, just be praying because there's there's a lot of stress that goes with this, uh, the emotional mm -hmm. response to this, especially when you think about this disaster coupled with being hit by a, a tropical depression right after with landslides and mudslides and, and all of the bad weather and the gangs and all of that kind of stuff came on the heels of the assassination of the president. So the country is already feeling the imbalance. And now you've got all of these natural disasters on top of it. Um, it's just stressful. You can imagine the stress. You can feel it rolling off of the ministries and waves. Be praying for them. Um, pray for rest. Because, you know, if you remember what it was like in 2010, the ministries that were there, that were hands and feet, excuse me, hands and feet, uh, were just exhausted by the constant issue of um, of the need of disaster, of crisis. Um, and to be able to respond again with this level of of, of uh, a disaster is, uh, it's going to take some supernatural strength. So ask God to provide all of those things. And, and that... The path to the gospel is made clear as people are serving as the hands and feet of Christ. Ruth, I'm um, this is slightly off topic, but it emerges out of what you just said. Um, I think there is a weariness upon us and an anxiety about what's happening, not only in Haiti and in Afghanistan, but in so many other places and spaces around the world and right down the street from where we live and sometimes in our own homes and certainly in our own families. And I just think that every once in a while, it's a good reminder to say out loud, um, God is God and we are not. And Jesus is the Savior and we are not. And so if you're listening right now and you are overwhelmed by what Ruth is reporting and what we have been talking about here on air, not just today and in recent days, but over the long haul, um, the headlines are challenging and the the grief that people um, are facing around the world is deep and real, but so too is God, and God is great and good and able and sees all and knows all and is loving and is pouring out grace. And so we want to lift up, and what, what Ruth and I are doing is lifting up the ways in which God is using the the, the hearts and hands and resources 
of his people to bring mercy and to alleviate all kinds of distress in the lives of so many people around the world. And so these are good news stories of what God is doing by his grace through his people, even as they are acknowledgments that the world is horribly broken, horribly, horribly broken in so many ways. So I just want to uh, you know, affirm that today as Ruth calls us to prayer and calls us to connect with ministries that are on the ground in various places you know, let us be the people who provide the prayer cover and, yes, the stream of resources that equip and empower those on the ground in all of these places. Um, Ruth, um, we don't have a lot of time, but let's, um, no, we don't. Let me just direct people to the good news stories that you have posted at missionnews.org. God is moving among Muslim women. I really encourage you um, to read that story uh, as well Lydia's as the story about— amazing. Yeah, about reaching women in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Just really amazing stories about the movement of God and God's people around the world. Ruth, um, we're praying for you. Thank you for bringing us the stories. Uh, and thank you for being that connecting point for, for us to so many ministries around the world. Thank you. You can find Ruth Kramer and everything we talked about today and so much more at missionnews.org. All right. Thank you for praying the news with me this morning, praying with and for those around the world in travail, where two or three are gathered in his name. He is present and where he is present, everything changes. Uh, The presence of God and the knowledge of the presence of God and the power of God through his spirit activated through his people, that really does change everything. It doesn't just change our perspective on what's happening. It changes the reality on the ground. And so let us be people who are praying the headlines of the day. Let us be people who are looking around our own lives and saying, hey, I have uh, resources that could be employed for the advancement of the gospel today in these specific uh, ways and through these specific ministries. Let's activate um, some of what is currently on the sidelines in terms of gospel ministry. So let me encourage you to look around today and see what is, um, you know, see what's there that might be activated today in your own life. And maybe, maybe it's prayer. Um, Don't leave that. Don't leave that weapon set aside. Uh, Pick that thing up and use it. All right. We are going to have another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.